Welcome to the Lord of the Rings Lorecast, the show that explores the background of Tolkien's amazing world from the very beginning. Who knows now the counsels of Morgoth? Who can measure the reach of his thought? Who had been Melkor, mighty among the Einar of the Great Song, and sat now a dark lord upon the dark throne in the north, weighing in his malice all the tidings that came to him, and perceiving more of the deeds and purposes of his enemies than even the wisest of them feared, save only Melian, the queen? Question mark? This is the next passage, directly after what we discussed last week. And Tolkien turns our attention back to Morgoth. We've been focused on Mim, the dwarf, and Turin, and Belig, and the going-abouts of, of those things. And we know that they've been fighting the orcs in the wilderness. And we know that Morgoth's power is seeping southward. But we are reminded here of just how far he has reached. Because there's a contrast. We're, we're given a contrast in just a moment. And I want to read all of this because it's actually really, really cool, really kind of interesting the way this is built up. So it goes on and says, To her, speaking of Melian again, often the thought of Morgoth reached out, and there was foiled. And now again the might of Angband was moved, and as the long fingers of a groping hand, the forerunners of his armies probed the ways into Beleriand. Through Anak, they came, and Dimbar was taken, and all the north marches of Doriath. So these are places that we've talked about before. These are the areas north of Doriath, just to the east or just to the west. Down the ancient road they came that led through the long defile of Syrian, past the isle where Minas Tirith of Finrod had stood. And just a reminder, this isn't the same Minas Tirith. This is the original Minas Tirith, which happened to have the same name. And so, through the land between Malduin and Syrian, and on through the eaves of Brethel to the crossing of Teglin. And I get a glimpse here in my mind as I'm picturing the map and how these areas are connected, that it's as if a liquid, a dark, oozing liquid, is dripping down from the top of the map and slowly covering everything. And it bends around Doriath, but it fits into all the other crevices. And a lot of these other places we've talked about already, these are places that Turin has been. These are places that Balag and Turin may have been guarding at one point. The elves and the remaining men have been putting up a good fight against these orcs in the wild, but they're losing. They are slowly losing, and the orcs are making their ways en masse, not just in individual roving bands, but en masse, further and further south, basically taking over the continent. 
until we get to where Turin and party currently reside, this hill. It continues. Thence the road went on into the guarded plain, the plain around the hill that they've been guarding. It's now called the guarded plain. But the orcs did not go far upon it as yet, for there dwelt now in the wild a terror that was hidden. And upon the red hill were watchful eyes, of which they had not been warned. And then we get this wonderful, I can imagine, I don't know, the music swells and this moment of, ah, Turin has returned. Because it says, for Turin put on again the helm of Hador, and far and wide and beleriand the whisper went, under wood and over stream and through the passes of the hills, saying that the helm and bow that had fallen in Dimbar had arisen again beyond hope. The helm and the bow have returned. Turin and Belig are back, and they're kicking some orc butt, and the orcs don't like it. But this brings hope to some of the other individuals out there who are looking for leaders, who are looking for a strong group to fight with. But things don't end there. So you can see a picture of what's unfolding here. The lands are slowly getting taken over, or actually fairly rapidly at this point, being taken over by the orcs. These are not just small groups of orcs. These are actually masses of large groups of orcs who are basically taking over all of these areas. Anybody who lives in these regions are fleeing from the forces of Morgoth. Their homes are being burned. Everything's being destroyed. These aren't, again, just little roving bands that groups of men or elves are able to kind of hold back who will raid a village on occasion. They are taking control. And yet there's a stop to this because they reach this region and all of a sudden they can't move through it. Turin's forces are too strong and they come to recognize the helm that he put on. This helm is known, and it is feared by the orcs, but it brings exactly the opposite feeling to any men or families or anybody. Stories about the helm of Dorloman, about Turin himself, and some of the deeds he's already done with Belig are going about, but then also of his father, of the history of their family fighting against Morgoth. And we're told here that the men who were dispossessed, the individuals out there who had lost their homes, their families, were looking to take revenge against Morgoth or fight the good fight, were now flocking to the hill. They realized not only was this a safe place, but this was a group that they could get in with in order to stick it to Morgoth for destroying their homes. And they wanted to see for themselves the helm of Dorloman and the bow of Belig. And so 
this region was given a new name, Dor Corthal, the land of bow and helm. You know when Tolkien renames something that there's a good reason, right? I mean, well, I guess he kind of does it all the time, but there's a justification. There's something important happening. And so that's what happens here. And at this, we also get Turin giving himself another new name. And Turin gives himself lots of names. Let's, (laughs) we have to be honest about that. But now he has gone from being Nathan, the wronged, to Gorthal, the dreadhelm. You can hear it in the words Gorthal. I mean, it almost sounds like the name of an orc or something, but he is using the helm as a new identity here. Belig has brought him back in a way from this dark place where he felt like he was abandoning the people that he he loved because of the accidental terrible things that happened we talked about before, but he has now turned. It's it's as if he has a different purpose. And that is signified by the changing of his name, Gorthal, the Dreadhelm. And we're even told here in the text that his heart was high again. He was doing the thing that he was meant to do. And meant is a tricky word. And it doesn't say that in the text. This is These are my words. There's this feeling that when Turin is being who he's supposed to be, he his his mood rises. He he finds success. And then when he is doing the things that he's not meant to do or when he's suffering for his own accidents or injustices or whatever, that it, it flips the other way. Right. Um, and yet. Turin can't get a break. That's just kind of the nature of this. (laughs) That's the nature of the entire story, basically. And so things are going well, but yet, and you guys have watched enough shows, movies, read enough books, whatever, to know that when things swing one direction, that they're ultimately going to swing another. The name goes out. This gets Morgoth's attention. The helm and the bow are back? What? Gorthal, the dread helm? The helm of Dorloman? Hurin's son? And we're told here that Morgoth laughs because he knew what this meant. This was Hurin's son, and he had shown back up and immediately. Ammon Rudd, the hill that they've been hiding out on, is ringed with spies. Those are the words from the text. So although the forces of the orcs are very, very careful to march out in the open of those fields around the helm, individual spies, and some of them not orcs, are watching to see what happens. They want to capture... Turin unaware and their goal isn't necessarily to kill Turin but to capture him like his father Hurin so he can pay for all of the trouble that he's been giving Morgoth and while all of this is happening you have to keep in mind what the dynamic must be back in their 
a hideout spot. We'll call it a hideout. I, don't, I mean, I guess that's the right word. I mean, it's not really a fortress of any sort. Their hideout. Because you have to remember here that this is a borrowed location. That they are, and their numbers are growing. The caves that they live in belong to Mim the dwarf, the petty dwarf. And Mim was wronged by the death of his son. And Mim was, and we have to go back to the previous episode. Turin wrongs him because his party kills his son. But Turin makes things right when he responds, in Mim's words, like a dwarf lord and offers recompense and tells him that he's going to make things right. And so by this point in the story, Mim has an affection for Turin. And we don't get as much about this in this version of the story. This is something that's fleshed out more in the long form Children of Hurin, which came out like 15 years ago. Um, but you have to keep in mind Mim's perspective here because of the events that are about to unfold. Mim likes Turin. He doesn't want Turin to be hurt, but he would be a lot happier if all of these men were not living in his cave. And on top of that, Belig shows up and is like best friends with Turin. So you have this sort of rivalry jealousy thing going on from Mim to Belig, which is interesting because I can't think of too many other examples of this in Tolkien's work. Maybe you guys can be like, oh yeah, what about this? But there's this definitely this like jealousy. I mean, you got the jealousy between Boromir and Faramir, but it's it's not the same kind of thing. They're just, they both want approval from their father, right? And it, it's a different dynamic. You do have some, I, I guess we can at least say that in the stories, Tolkien is aware enough of how these kinds of relationships can work and the approval and uh, wanting of affections or friendship for some from somebody else can get in the way of some the other person. We'll just we'll just say that, right? We'll just put that there. But this is what's happening here. And the party is getting bigger, which means there are more men in Mim's house and there's only two petty dwarves there and they can't do anything about it. The group needs this location. They're being successful. And Belig is there and Turin and Belig are getting all of the praise for everything that's going on and poor Mim isn't even thought of because they're just living in his house. That is my sort of head canon of how this unfolds, I guess you could say. So you have to keep that in mind when as the year is waning, Mim and Iben, the one living son of his, decide to head out and gather some roots in order to prepare for the winter when something unexpected happens. So let me tell you a little story. You know that we get sponsors on these podcasts and Yuffie, who does these smart locks with video cameras in them, reached out and they sent me a smart door lock with a 2K camera, a doorbell and a finger reader, all the bells and whistles. And I was like, okay, cool. They sent it to me. I already have one on my back door. When I opened this up and installed it, I was like, why didn't I go with Yuffie to begin with? Because this 
is a step above the one that I've been using. The finger reader just works. The 2K camera is so clear. I can see when somebody's at the front door, if it's Amazon or if it's somebody trying to sell me something. It even has night vision and works in the dark. It makes me feel so much safer. Plus, my son can just put his finger on the door and just come right in when he gets home from school. He doesn't have to worry about losing keys and you don't even have to change the batteries in these because it's got like a 10,000 milliwatt hour battery that lasts for like four months. Go check these out today. Search for Eufy Video Lock, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock, or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door. Again, search Eufy Video Lock. I think you'll love it. Welcome to the middle of the show and welcome to 2023. (laughs) We're moving on to a new year and just want to say one more time. Thank you to everybody who listens to the show. Everybody who shows any type of support at all. I could not do this without you. And this show has been an amazing success over the last year, way beyond anything that I considered it possibly would become. So thank you to every single one of you from listening. And um, I, I've got to shout out some of our patrons. We've got a bunch of new ones this week. Let's go through the list. We've got Lynn F, Adam S, uh, Mr. Christine. And then I have to scroll up in order to get to the rest of these. Bradley S, Ross N, uh, Gandalf with an I. Welcome. Julia Julie, sorry, Julie, not with an A. Julie B. Uh, Kegel, Anna H. Piri T. Will, Mitchell H. And Tony M. Wow. Thank you to every single one of you. I hope you are enjoying either your ad-free episodes or your bonus episodes. If you sign up at the second tier, you get bonus episodes, one for every episode that's gone up. And uh, I hope you're enjoying those as well. We are up to 152 current patrons. Thank you to every single one of you. And we've got to shout out our VIP patrons, which, holy moly, there's more of you guys now. We've got Bo, Brad Sparks, Brandy D, Chewbacca, David M, Esoteric Rage, Goblin. I love these names. Jesse P, uh, Larry, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Sam B, Shannon L, Sheev Palpatine. Thank you to all of you guys. You guys are wonderful. And we've got some new reviews that have come out in the last uh, few weeks. Only a few of them right now. So let's read through these. We have... Evie, the synesthet, well, that's a cool word, uh, from the United States who writes, great show. This has been a wonderful listen through. It's been really fun to engage with the lore in a new way. Robots has great perspective and insight into Tolkien's world. The only feedback I've got is pronunciation. Yes, absolutely. I totally understand. I generally don't care if everything is 100% accurate as long as it's close. And I know that it's not his strong suit or focus, but some parts are really cringe to hear things mispronounced continuously like... It's Turgan, isn't it? It's not Turgan. It's Turgan because the U is like the U in Turin. Yeah, I, I goofed that, huh? Which I didn't even recognize. It also spreads to his listening audience, which, uh, which I don't think Tolkien would much appreciate. Yes, I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize. Just a quick Google search would take this professional podcast to the next level. Regardless, I'm going to keep listening because he's so good with works and has interesting dialogue. I don't want to get hung up on how he says things. So I appreciate the five stars anyway. Thank you so much, Evie. And I'm, I'm doing my best. Sometimes I uh, like on the one episode where I totally was corrected and then the next 
next episode totally forgot or sometimes the words just look simple so i don't think to look them up and then something like turgan which just looks like turgan doesn't look like anything fancy is actually turgan yeah i'm working on it i'm doing my best i hope i'm able to improve this for you as i go that's my goal but thank you for the feedback we also have one from uh the (laughs) the name on this one is uh sunglasses smiley face big mouth smiley face big mouth smiley face four sunglasses smiley faces three big mouth smiley faces four sunglasses smiley faces i don't i didn't know you could make emojis as your name but i think everybody should do that now uh from canada by the way uh who writes huge fan used to be a big fan of the fallout lore cast and the elder scrolls lore cast from the start of them and then left for a bit and now i found out he made a lord of the rings lore cast keep it up well welcome back a bunch of smiley faces i appreciate you uh tuning back in man we're going into the fifth year of those other shows uh the fallout lore cast and the elder scrolls lore cast five years old well at least we're starting into the fifth year um holy moly Thank you to everybody. I really do appreciate you supporting and your kind words and uh, careful, uh, constructive criticisms, all of that stuff. You, This community is awesome. You guys are the best, and I really do appreciate it. So thank you for being here. If you'd like to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, I will read that out on a future episode of the show for five-star reviews. And you can always rate the show on whatever other platform. Also, I've gotten some other notes from some of you guys from like emails and other locations. I'm doing my best to respond to those. I I get a bunch of stuff. So uh, if you haven't heard back from me, I've read it. I appreciate you. Thank you for sending me stuff. And um, that's awesome. (laughs) All right, let's move on with the rest of the show. So, of course, everything's going swimmingly and it's not going to do that forever, is it? Otherwise, it wouldn't be a very interesting story. But here's what happens. Mim and his son go out to gather roots for their winter store. And while they're doing this, they're taken captive by orcs. And we have a parallel to another situation that was happening before. Remember when they got captured by Turin's people? Well, they negotiated for their survival. What did they negotiate? How to get to their home up on the hill. And this is exactly the same thing that happens here. And Tolkien calls it out. He says, Then for a second time, Mim promised to guide his enemies by the secret paths to his home on Ammon Rudd. He gives them basically a way in to handle all of these mangy men who are taking over his house. Now, the fact that he trusts orcs to do this means that he must have been pretty desperate because chances are he's still not going to survive that. Or at least I would, that's the assumption I would make is even if you make a deal with a totally evil character, like an orc, they're probably just going to betray you in the end anyway and kill you anyway. But this is what he does. And you have to see it through the perspective of the stuff that I described before the break. Why would he be so desperate to do this? It's not just the people staying in his home. It's a certain level of jealousy because he tells them that Turin should not be hurt. 
It says in the text, but yet he sought to delay the fulfillment of his promise and demanded that Gorthal should not be slain. Turin, Gorthal. Then the orc captain laughed and he said to Mim, Assuredly, Turin, son of Hurin, shall not be slain. And there is absolutely a reason here why the orc captain is reminding us of Turin's heritage. This is not just a name. Sometimes this happens where somebody is given a formal name and you name their father. It's like saying their last name, sort of, right? Like this is who they are and this is their lineage. And so therefore they have honor and respect from that lineage. This is more of Turin is the son of Hurin who we have captured and we would like to do the same thing to him that we did to his father. That's kind of more of the mood of this. And that feels way sinister, especially because Mim may not even realize the context here. And so Mim leads them through the secret ways up into the hill. And they do this by night at unawares, as Tolkien puts it, guided by Mim. And in their sleep, Many of the men were murdered. This band of orcs quietly creeps into these caves. And kind of like the scene in The Lord of the Rings, where the Nazgul think they've got the hobbits and they stab the empty beds. These beds aren't empty. And they take out a significant number of the men. And and some of the other men notice that this is going on. And so, of course, they get up and they flee and they come out to the hilltop. But as they leave the caves, there's even more orcs waiting there for them. And they fight a good fight. But they fall. And we're told that, quote, their blood flowed out upon the Saragon that mantled the stone. Remember the flowers on top of the hill that were red when Turin and his group arrived? They're definitely red again. But a net was cast over Turin as he fought, and he was enmeshed in it and overcome and led away. Turin is captured. Exactly what the orcs wanted. But also, Mim, I don't think, understood what dangers he was putting Turin in. The next paragraph goes like this. And at length, when all was silent again, Mim crept out of the shadows of his house. And as the sun rose over the mists of Syrian, he stood beside the dead men on the hilltop. But he perceived that not all those that lay there were dead, for by one his gaze was returned. And he looked in the eyes of Belig the elf. Then, with hatred long stored, Mim stepped up to Belig and drew forth the sword Anglical that lay beneath the body of one that had fallen beside him. Belig was warned about this blade. And it just so happens that Mim grabs this one among any of the other ones laying on the ground next to the dead soldiers. And I think for a moment here, we're supposed to wonder about the nature of this blade and if it will be wielded by Mim against Belig. 
We were warned about it. It's thirsty for blood and doesn't care. It has a little bit of a will of its own, in a sense. But in this moment, things work out for Belig. Belig, stumbling up, seized back the sword and thrust it at the dwarf. And Mim, in terror, fled, wailing from the hilltop. And Belig cried after him, The vengeance of the house of Hador will find you yet. And we've been through vows before. We've <laughs> the, Almost the entirety of the first age is built on vows and the fact that those vows will in some way come true in almost a Shakespearean way where sometimes it works out the way the person who made the vow expects, but a lot of times it doesn't. There's a vow made here by Belig that vengeance will be brought to Mim for their betrayal. And you have to think for a moment. Did Mim get what he wanted? It seems like he did. This actually worked out for him in a way. The orcs were able to get to the, to the caves. They routed the men. They killed most of them. They drove off anyone else if anybody was still alive, which we're not told here. They capture Turin. They think they kill Belig, but yet Belig survives. And then Mim runs away. So for the most part, it works, but it doesn't work 100% because Mim and his son have to now avoid Belig. And we're told in another description about the nature of elves and how they're different from men that Belig was sorely wounded and he was mighty among the elves of Middle-earth. And he was moreover a master of healing. And we've talked about that before with him. Therefore, he did not die, and slowly his strength returned, and he sought in vain among the dead for Turin to bury him. Belig's perspective here is that Turin must also be dead. Everybody else is. But he did not find him. And then, at that moment, he knew what really happened. Turin was being carted off to Angband in the hands of the orcs, most likely to meet a very similar fate as his father. And whenever you think about Hurin, remember that Hurin is up on the walls of Angband with the vision of Morgoth and able to see all of this. From a distance. Hurin would have seen the betrayal of Mim. He would have seen the routing of the men on the top of the hill. And he would have seen the capture of his son. And the sickening feeling of what the orcs and Morgoth were now planning to do to him too. Thanks for listening to the Lord of the Rings Lorecast. If you'd like to learn more about other fantasy worlds, check out my other podcasts, The Elder Scrolls Lorecast, The Witcher Lorecast, and more at robotsradio.net. If you'd like to reach out, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a note on Twitter at robots underscore radio, or join our amazing community on the Robots Radio Discord. There are links in the show notes, or just search Robots Radio Discord, or find the link on robotsradio.net. I'll see you next time.